So when we think of this word, discipline, especially uh, in the context of uh, children, thinking about kids, most of us will just narrow our thoughts real quickly down to giving a spanking, giving a timeout, taking away privileges, things like this. Right? We tend to only think of the punitive response to disobedience with children when we think about discipline. And while that is indeed where we're going to be spending the majority of our time this morning, I think it's important for us to begin by remembering and recognizing that the discipline of children is really this smaller piece of a bigger discipleship puzzle. So it's more than just consequences for their sin. It's more than just a spanking or more than just a timeout or taking away a cell phone or removing privileges, video games, things like that. Discipleship is a holistic training, whereas discipline that we're talking about this morning is this small piece that kind of focuses in on the issue of obedience. Think of it like this. Imagine uh, a football team, a football team that wants to get better. How do they get better? They train, right? They work at the game. They're disciplined. Uh, they don't only go out on the field and run plays and try to get it right every time, although they do that. They also work out. They lift weights. They try to build up their strength and, and, and improve the speed at which they can run and these kinds of things in order to be better at the game. They watch countless hours of video of other players so that they can learn from their mistakes as well as their own and at the end of the day, they do spend some of that time out on the field running plays and having the coach say, nope, that's not it. Do it again. And then eventually they start to say, I know what I'm doing. And they try to manipulate it and change it and say, I'm going to do it a little bit differently like this. And then the coach has to say, nope, that's not it. Now give me five laps and we're going to do it again. And so in a similar way, the, the discipleship of children is like this, Right? In a similar way, discipleship isn't just giving them these rules and then handing out punishment when they break them. Truly discipling children has got to include other things. It's got to include the study of God's word, prayer, participating in corporate worship, being a part of a local church. And all of those things contribute to learning who God is and what he has commanded, what he expects, so that hopefully the kids can be trained into an understanding that they cannot measure up. We want our kids to learn that they cannot reach this standard of perfection that God has set. And then the, from there that they can go on to learning that there is indeed one who has measured up. There is indeed one who has obeyed perfectly and that his righteousness can be theirs if they will just repent and believe. So that's the goal of parenting. The goal of discipling children is to make disciples. The goal is that they might love and trust in the one who has made them but that bigger topic of discipleship, that holistic view, isn't what we're talking about this morning. We're only talking about this little sliver. We're talking about the discipline of children, which is a piece of that puzzle. And the reason I say all of that is because I don't want us to think that discipline is what it takes to raise a kid. It's a piece of what it takes to raise a kid. And so we have to be faithful in other areas as well, parents, but we're gonna talk specifically about discipline this morning. So let's jump into it. Why should we discipline our children? I think there's four clear reasons that the scriptures give. There's more, I think, that can be discerned, but I've, I've kind of distilled it down to these four. The first one is, it's good for the child. The scriptures are clear. Proverbs 22, 6. Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Now, this is not a promise. This is in the wisdom literature, right? This is the idea that if you are faithful, then you have laid the groundwork and the foundation so that the Lord might be gracious and give them faith. 
Ultimately, it's up to God whether or not your children become believers. This verse is not promising you that if you disciple your kids well, that they will come to faith. That's not what's being said. But Hebrews 12 also says, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So the scriptures are clear that to discipline your children is good for them. The outcome, the hope that we see in discipline is that it will be good for them. Number two, the second one, it will lead the child toward wisdom and knowledge. Proverbs twenty-two fifteen: folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline drives it far from him. Proverbs 29, 15, the rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. Proverbs 12, verse 1, whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates reproof is stupid. Proverbs 15, verse 32, whoever ignores instruction despises himself, but he who listens to reproof gains intelligence. Proverbs 13.1, a wise son hears his father's instruction, but a scoffer does not listen to rebuke. And then last, Proverbs 15, verse 5, a fool despises his father's instruction, but whoever heeds reproof is prudent. So again and again and again, the text tells us that to discipline our children leads them toward knowledge and leads them toward wisdom. That ultimately, this is a good thing for our kids. Third one, kids are sinners. Right? If you have kids, you don't need me to prove that to you from the text. But I will anyway. Psalm 51, verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, David says, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Now, he's not saying that his mother was sinning in his conception, but rather he was a sinner from conception. What David is saying is, I've always been a sinner. From the moment I began to exist, I was a sinner. This idea is that we sin because we're sinners, right? It isn't that we are sinners because we sin. They'll sound the same, but they're wildly different from one another. Romans chapter three, verses 10 through 12, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Kids are included in all of that. Kids are not righteous. Kids have not done good. Kids are sinners. They're just like us. And God is asking us to do with our kids what he does with his kids. Hebrews 12. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. So God disciplines his children. You and I, those of us that are are bought and paid for by the blood of Christ, God disciplines us and he's asking us to do the same with our kids. And then last one, but not least one, perhaps most importantly, we have been commanded to do this. We've been commanded to discipline our kids. Deuteronomy 6, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. The text is clear. We are to be making disciples of our kids and that includes this discipline. 
Ephesians 6 says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So why should we discipline our children? Because it's good for them. Because it will lead them to wisdom and knowledge. Because they are sinners and they need it. And we have been commanded to do so. Okay, so if we are supposed to be disciplining our children, what does the Bible say we should be doing exactly? What does the Bible say that discipline should look like? Well, the Bible only talks about one method. It's the rod. And this is where we're gonna be kind of camping out and spending most of our time. It's the most controversial issue on this subject of disciplining children, both inside and outside of the church. And so first I want us to just look at that word. Think about the word rod and what it means. Nearly every single time this word is used in the scriptures, it's talking about a literal stick or staff, a actual physical rod. There are a few times where it's metaphorical, right? Where maybe it's talking about a group of people that God is using as a rod to discipline another group of people. But again, that metaphor is hearkening back to this same idea of a stick or an implement being used to strike someone, to punish them. But 99% of the time, it is not a metaphor. It is literally talking about a stick used to hit someone with. So when we look at these verses that are coming up here, we need to keep that in mind. That's what that word means. It is not a metaphor for general discipline. It is not a metaphor for some sort of community wisdom on how to raise a child. It is literally talking about a stick. So here we go, Proverbs 29, 15. We read this one already, but it bears repeating, the rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. Proverbs 23, 13 and 14, do not withhold discipline from a child. If you strike him with a rod, he will not die. If you strike him with a rod, you will save his soul from Sheol. Proverbs 13, 24, whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. This verse is interesting because it's saying that we hate our children if we withhold this discipline, if we withhold the rod. But just a few minutes ago, we read another verse that said if the child ignores or dismisses the parent's reproof, the parent's discipline, then the child hates himself. And so God is attacking this idea from both angles. If the parent refuses to do it, it is not loving. If the child refuses to receive it, it is not loving. It's from both sides that God is addressing this issue and its value and its importance. Proverbs 22, verse 15, folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline drives it far from him. So clearly, the Bible is telling us that using the rod is good, and it's commended to parents. Indeed, it is commended so strongly to us parents that we're told if we withhold it, then we hate our children. That's strong. That's really strong. If I don't use the rod with my kids, the Bible says I hate my kids. That's tough. And we don't like it. We don't like the way it makes us feel. It's the opposite of what our feelings tell us. Our feelings tell us that if I give my child any pain of any kind ever, physical, emotional, any kind, it's bad and it hurts and we don't like it and we don't wanna do it. But what exactly does this mean? What exactly does this mean? Are we supposed to copy what we see here in this text exactly as it would have been understood at the time? Or is it an idiom that we're allowed to adjust into our modern context? Are we literally supposed to do what they would have understood, the original readers would have understood? I'm supposed to strike my kid on the back 
with a stick, with nothing covering their back, on their spine, I'm supposed to hit them and literally beat them. Is that okay for us today? Is that the only way that's faithful? How much can we reduce or, or change this instruction and still be faithful? Is kind of a modern idea of spanking on the bottom acceptable? Should it be skin on skin? Is it okay for it to be over the clothes? Should I use an implement, a wooden spoon or something else? Should I, can it just be my hand? Can I just give them a kid a Vulcan neck pinch or something? Right? At what point am I no longer being faithful with this? And this is a tricky question because the scriptures aren't perfectly clear. But we can think through some of these questions. We can think through some of these issues together and I think come to some helpful conclusions that will help us. So first, it seems obvious that if we stray away from it being a physical act, then we're no longer able to do what's being spoken of in these passages. So there must be something physical about this, but the problem is we don't wanna, right? We don't want to, and that's the problem. We don't want to do this. I imagine every single parent in here and anybody who's watching this at home or on video that's a parent, no matter where you land, whether you are super pro spanking or if you're super anti-corporal punishment or if you're somewhere in the middle wringing your hands and being uncertain of what it's supposed to be, I think all of us would agree we don't want to give our kids pain, ever. We don't want to do this. And that's the very reason that this is addressed so frequently. That same sin that we see in the garden in Genesis crops up in our hearts here. God says to Adam and Eve, don't eat that fruit. And then they're tempted to believe the opposite of what God has said. Did God say that it's really, you really are gonna die, it's really not gonna go well? And they go, I don't know, maybe it is gonna be nice. It would be kinda cool to be as, as cool as God. Maybe we should eat the fruit. And they completely flip it upside down and say, we will do the exact opposite of what God has said because it feels good to us. That same temptation comes up in the heart of a parent. When we read these texts that say, I'm supposed to give my child some kind of physical pain associated with their sin, I don't like that. I don't want that. Surely that's not what it means. Surely that's not what God is saying. And so I won't. I won't do that because I think I know better. I think, I'm, I think it's been misinterpreted all these years. I think the entirety of church history has gotten it wrong and I've figured it out. What God really means is don't hurt your kids. That's hard. That's very difficult. And this is why God addresses this very concern. We don't want to do this. As parents, we don't want to be obedient to this, this notion. We'd rather dismiss the whole thing. And so he tells us, no, no, no. If you do this, he won't die. If you do this, it will drive folly out of his heart. If you do this, you will save his soul from Sheol. If you do this, then you're demonstrating that you love him. If you do this, you will bring him nearer to knowledge and nearer to wisdom. God is telling us that we should allow our children to experience pain and to feel pain associated with their sin because it's good for them. That's difficult for us to grasp. That's difficult for us to embrace. But the reality is being in sin is worse than being in pain. Being in sin is worse than being in pain. And Jesus makes this point very clear in Matthew 5 when he's talking to his disciples and he says, if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. It's better for you to go for the rest of your life with one eye than to remain in sin. 
If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to experience that pain and suffer through the rest of your life without being to write a letter to grandma than to, to remain in your sin. God takes sin seriously, and he commands us to take sin seriously. And so why would we address the sin in our children light, more lightly? Why would we consider their sin less important, less serious? It's clear that what's being prescribed here is a physical act intended to inflict pain in order to bring about obedience. And that obedience at first will be for the wrong reasons, right? You give your kids the rod and they say, I don't like that, that hurts. I'm just gonna do what you say because I don't want to hurt. I don't want that pain. Their motive for obeying you will be wrong. It won't be because they love you. It won't be because they trust you, because they think that you are right. They think God is right. It's just, I don't want to hurt. But as we talked about in the beginning, all the rest of that discipleship puzzle that we aren't really digging into today comes alongside with the discipline. And through these other methods, through studying God's word together and praying together and exhorting your kids to understand what God has said and who he is and what he's about, those things will lead your child toward an understanding that their motive for obeying you can change. Their motive for obeying you doesn't have to just be, I don't want pain. It can be, I love and trust the authority that I've been given. I submit myself to this authority, and that is good. And when they learn to submit themselves to you as their earthly authority, that sets them up for being able to understand how to submit themselves to God as their heavenly authority. So it is indeed corporal punishment, corporal just meaning of the body, right? Physical punishment that's being prescribed here. But next we need to consider whether it should be an implement. Should there be some sort of object that's being used? Some would say that in order to be faithful to the text, you absolutely must use an, an object. You absolutely must use an implement. But that isn't necessarily so, right? If we're willing to concede that it doesn't have to be an actual rod, it doesn't have to actually be the stick or staff that you beat your kid over the back with, but it could be a wooden spoon or it could be a little leather flappy thing or it could be a whole bunch of other implements. If you're willing to concede it could be another implement, then could it also not just be a hand? Could it not also be some other method by which you inflict this, this uh, pain that is necessary to be associated with their sin? Another reason that's given for the use of an implement is because it distances the parent from the pain. It's not me that's hurting you, it's this wooden spoon. And I get to distance myself from you, and so you're not afraid of my hands, you're afraid of the spoon. And I think there's arguments to be made for that, I think there's arguments to be made on the other side of that. But at the end of the day, that issue isn't addressed in the text, and so there's room for debate. There's room, there's Christian freedom to discern how this needs to play out. The difficulty with that is that it's kind of based on cultural presuppositions and presumes that there are lots of other things missing from that process. I would contend that it's possible for a parent to use their hand and also have their kids not be afraid of their hands. Those same hands feed your children. Those same hands scoop them up and love them and hold them and comfort them and pray with them after they've been given the rod. And so am I saying that somehow hands is the thing and you should be using hands rather than implements? No, the, the text is clear. The text talks about an implement. But the text doesn't prohibit the use of other implements than a rod, and also doesn't prohibit the use of the hand. So, when should the rod be used? 
Now, there are many who would say that the rod should be just a last resort punishment, only after every other method you can think of have been exhausted, or perhaps only in, the, in an issue of extreme defiance, or if a kid's in, in really grave danger. Other people would contend you should use the rod every single time your kid disobeys. There are pros and cons for both of those positions. And again, this is a place where there's room for debate. This particular question of how often should it be used is not addressed in the scriptures. In what circumstances should you use the rod? How often should you use it? These are adiaphora issues. You have freedom to discern that for yourselves. These are decisions that can be made by each parent for each child. So what parents we need to bear in mind, what we need to remember is that we can easily misuse our authority over our children, which would then cause us to misuse the discipline that we would use, which would cause us to misuse the rod. The way that God's designed the parent-child relationship to work is that parents are given complete authority and power over their children. God gives children very simple rules to follow. Obey your parents and honor them. That's it. What that translates to for them is anything your parents command you to do, you've got to do. With a few exceptions, right? If I told my son, I command you to fly, well, he can't do that, so he can't obey me. I've asked him to do something he's incapable of doing. If I command him to go and murder somebody that I'm mad at, well, he can't do that either. I'm commanding him to sin. But with those limited exceptions, anything a parent commands their kids to do, they have to do it. And that's challenging. So if the child disobeys, then the parent's got to provide consequences for their disobedience. So if we're issuing dozens and dozens of commands to our kids every day that perhaps we ought not to be issuing, and then we're using the rod to discipline them, there might be some lack of wisdom, there might be some lack of faithfulness if our kids are getting a spanking every time they fail to pass the salt properly at the table or something like this. The point that I'm trying to make here is that the decision on when you should use the rod should be built upon other decisions. Namely, when you decide to give commands, what kinds of commands are you giving your children? And that will influence how much and how often you would need to use the rod in your discipline. Okay, let's keep going. How can I know if I'm not being faithful with this? How can I know if I am not being faithful with the rod? There seems to be so much leeway, so much opportunity for discernment, so much opportunity for differences among parents. How do I know if I'm out of step? How do I know if I'm outside the bounds of what the scriptures are giving uh, in, in instruction to? How do I know if I'm at odds with God's word? And I would say there's two parameters on either side of this notion. The first one is physically injuring your child. Your use of the rod should be measured, controlled, and used for the purposes that God ordained it. It is for training your child in obedience. It's not to be used for vengeance. That belongs to the Lord. It's not to be used to vent your frustrations and your anger. It's not to be used to demonstrate your power. God's already given you that. You already have it. You don't need to prove it. It's been given so that your child might feel the sting of their sin and over time learn how to flee from the temptation to sin. It is not meant to bruise or break or otherwise injure your children. These things would rightly be considered abuse. There are laws against child abuse, and rightly so. But in the United States, by the grace of God, those laws do not extend to corporal punishment. There are countries that have outlawed corporal punishment because they think it's bad and wrong. And by God's grace, we don't have to worry about those here. You have both the legal and biblical freedom to use the rod with your children. 
But according to these texts, Christians, you have a responsibility to do so, not just freedom. Which brings us to the second thing that would put you out of step with the scripture. The second thing that would put you at odds with God's word, and that would be to not use it at all. There is not any reasonable interpretation of these texts that would allow parents to just completely dismiss this method of discipline without outright dismissing what God has clearly said. And of course, I think there would be exceptions here. I think if you had a child with special needs who could not make the cognitive connection between their disobedience and and the punishment, then there might be room for giving an exception. If you have a foster child in your home where there is a prohibition by the law that you cannot use corporal punishment with them until they become fully adopted into your family, or if you have welcomed a child into your home that's experienced a lifetime of abuse, and so now those things are completely skewed and, and need to be retrained, I think that there might be exception for this. But apart from those kinds of things, we don't have the freedom to ignore this as parents. As Christian parents, we don't have the freedom to dismiss the rod as something we just don't wanna do. So the bottom line on using the rod is that you can use it too much to the injury of your children, or you can completely dismiss it as something you don't want to do, and either of those things would put you at odds with God's word. But there is so much freedom and room in between those two things for you to discern what is genuinely best for your family and for your children. So next, who should be implementing this method of discipline? This one's super easy and fast, parents. That's it. Every time this comes up in the text, the the, the scriptures are addressing parents. Can I let the teacher do it? Can I let the grandparents do it? Can I let my home group leader do it? I don't know. Those are really, really tricky questions. What I can tell you is the scriptures declare that you should be doing this as parents, not passing it off to someone else. But could you invite others into that process? Maybe. I think it's something to talk about. Next, what about the other methods, Carl? What about time out? What about taking away their toys, taking away their privileges, appealing to their conscience, reasoning with them? Can't I do that? Are you saying I just got to spank my kids all the time, all day, every day? No, I'm not saying that. God has given very little detail on this subject, and he's left much to the parents to decide how to implement discipline. The rod is the only method that's explicitly spoken of in the text, but he doesn't exclude or prohibit other methods. Can you use time out? Certainly. Can you remove privileges? Of course. Can you appeal to reason? Can you appeal to the conscience of your children? Absolutely. Can you challenge your children to a duel in the backyard? Probably not. But there is a primacy given to the rod in the text. These other methods can be good and valuable and helpful, and they should be a supplement to the rod. We cannot and should not dismiss it, right? The rod should be, in the beginning, in the early years of your child's life, almost the only tool in your tool belt because they don't know how yet to reason and consider these things and understand language and so on. But as they grow, these other tools become more valuable and the rod goes from being the only tool to the primary tool. And then it goes from the primary tool to a secondary tool. Then it goes from the secondary to a tertiary tool. And eventually, you don't use it anymore. My son Taylor is 18 years old. He lives in my house. He's still under my authority. I do not spank him. Mostly because I don't think I'd be able to. I think he might be stronger than me at this point. But why don't I do it? The scriptures say I'm supposed to do it. How did I decide when to stop? How do you decide when to stop? I think that is a, again, that is an anti-offer issue that you have to deal with as a, as a family. But 
But at the end of the day, I think what you see is your child developing into new areas of understanding and wisdom and strength and stature and on and on and on, and your parenting grows with them. My experience with my oldest, my my son Taylor, is that every time he would move into a new kind of developmental stage, I wouldn't notice at first. So when he was eight, I was still discipling him and disciplining him as if he was five. And it got really exasperating for him and for my wife. And she said, hey, are you ever gonna stop pretending like he's a toddler? Oh, yeah, I probably should. And then I moved into this new area. Ah, this feels better. And then he, would, he grew into kind of this prepubescent, adolescent kind of thing, and I'm still treating him like he's eight. Oh, I have to move over, I have to change. And as those changes came, the value of time out, the value of removal of privileges, the value of reasoning with him grew, and the need for the rod decreased. As I began to see the, the fruits of conviction in his heart over sin, as I began to see what I perceived to be the spirit moving in him and convicting him of sin, as I began to see him desiring to be obedient, not out of fear, but out of love, as I began to see him lamenting and feeling contrite over his sin and a desire to not sin against a holy God, that need for that rod decreased. And eventually there came a day when it didn't happen anymore. And so I think at the end of the day, you have the freedom to stop, but that freedom to stop should be based on a conscientious conviction that your child has grown and developed and matured into a place where it is no longer this primary tool. If you decide to stop using it because it's good for you, because you don't like it, and it makes you feel bad, I think that is probably the wrong time to make that decision. But if you're doing it because it's good for the child, because you see that they've grown and matured, then I think it's valuable. Let's keep going. Let's talk about some arguments against the rod, against this kind of biblical discipline that we see. Our culture and society has many objections. I've kind of distilled it down to just a few. The first one is, it harms the child physically. But God himself uses this very method. Think of Job. God let him experience immense pain, both physical and emotional, for his good. Think of the Israelites. God allows them to experience pain and suffering for hundreds of years in order that their hard hearts might be softened to their need for a savior. If indeed a child is injured while using corporal punishment, that isn't discipline, it's sin. However, many in our culture would say that any pain a child experiences is bad and abusive and harmful. As Christians then, out of fear of what we see in our society, we will want to kind of capitulate to that notion in spite of the fact that God clearly tells us this is good. And we've got to be wary of any position that would flip what we said earlier and say that somehow pain is worse than sin. It is not. Sin is worse than pain. And that belief comes from this kind of individualistic worldview that's brought in by postmodern thinking and things like this. In our modern way of thinking in our culture, the child's temporal comfort and happiness is more important than his eternal joy and righteousness. And therefore, parents should not spank their kids. But that's contrary to what God is teaching us. God is not saying you should keep him happy. God is not saying you should make him comfortable. God is saying you should discipline him that he might be drawn toward righteousness. Number two, it harms the child psychologically or it hinders their development. 
And these are arguments that have kind of been birthed out of an anti-corporal punishment, anti-spanking movement that's only really taken form over in the last century. Prior to this, there have been pockets of objection to corporal punishment around the world, but generally speaking, the entirety of history has said that corporal punishment of children is valuable in training them. It's only in this recent century that some societies have jumped onto that bandwagon, and it's not a result of actually increased knowledge or an increased ability to reason through these things. It's because of this postmodern thinking that has permeated the intellectual discourse of our society. It creates this presupposition that spanking is bad, spanking is wrong. Therefore, we need to go out and find or create research that supports the idea that it's bad and wrong. There have been lots of studies done in an effort to demonstrate that corporal punishment shouldn't be used, but in almost every single case, those studies have been built around that presupposition that it's bad, and they don't actually do any research. Back in the early 90s, a group of American pediatricians, not a bunch of Christian people trying to prove God's word, but a bunch of pediatricians trying to gather data, set out to compile the findings of as many studies as they could in order to find out what, where things stood on this subject. They found 132 studies that were done on the idea of corporal punishment. And of those 132, only 24 of them had any empirical data of any kind, meaning any actual research having been done. Of those 24 studies, 23 of them used really ambiguous wording that would lump anybody who used any method together. So a Christian parent who's trying to be faithful to raise their child in the discipline and instruction of the Lord and use the rod in a controlled and helpful and loving way is lumped in to an abusive alcoholic father who burns his kid with cigarettes. Those are all in the same pile. And when you put them all in the same pile, the result is, oh, this, is, this thing's bad. This looks really, really bad. And the conclusion that they actually come to is that an abused child does worse than a non-abused child. Well, we already knew that. So the question of what becomes of a child who is faithfully raised in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, what happens in a Christian home where discipline is meted out according to the text and is accompanied by all these other pieces of the discipleship puzzle, that's not studied, that's not looked at, that's not considered. Can these things be used poorly? Yes. Can we do discipleship and discipline of our kids and use the rod sinfully? Yes. Can we use it ineffectually because we're angry and we're frustrated, we're not thinking clearly? Yes. Of course, all things that God says are good can be used sinfully and wrongly by man. But do we stop eating food because gluttony exists? Do we stop drinking wine because alcoholism exists, drunkenness exists? No. Should we not follow God's word and discipline our children with the rod just because it's possible that we might mess it up? No. Third argument here, it's the strong preying on the weak. It's the, uh, the oppressor against the oppressed, right? This is kind of birthed out of the critical theory that's primarily concerned with power, right? This idea that those who have power are oppressing those that don't. Parents have the power, so we're oppressing the children. They are the oppressed because they don't have power. But that's false thinking, right? It's contrary to how God thinks about and uses power and force. There are lots and lots of places where we see God restraining evil in the world by using power, by using superior strength. Most notably, and in particular, God uses war to restrain evil. 
God uses the superior power of the Babylonians and the Assyrians to capture the kingdom of Israel and Judah in order to bring judgment upon them for forsaking God and worshiping idols. In World War II, the allies are this superior force that God uses to suppress and restrain evil in the German Third Reich and all of the atrocities of Hitler and so on. In a similar way, God uses your superior power as a parent to suppress and restrain evil in your parent, in your kid, sorry. Although to a much lesser degree, I'm not suggesting like that your kids are Hitler or something. Although you might say that on a bad day. All right, this inequity of power in your relationship with your children is not a bad thing, it's a God-ordained thing. It is why you have been given the charge to discipline your children, to teach them to obey you. Because in learning to obey you, they learn to obey God. Because according to God, them obeying you is obeying God. Because that's the one command he's given them, it's to obey you. So ultimately, our culture and our society don't like spanking because it's got this wrong view of the depravity of man and the need for a savior. Kids are viewed by culture and society as being somehow either morally neutral or even good. Kids are born good, they're sweet and innocent, but that's false. They're not morally neutral. They're not morally righteous. Any wrongdoing on the part of a kid in our society and culture is viewed as the fault of the parent, the fault of the teacher, the fault of the society, the fault of some other external influence. But the reality is the person who's responsible for the child's sin is the child. They are culpable for their sin, just as we all are. Our only hope and our kid's only hope is the gospel. This beautiful gift of salvation that is offered and purchased by Christ on the cross is the only thing that can bring us from being bankrupt to neutral and even further than neutral to righteous. Where God would count us as righteous and perfect and clean because of what Christ has done. That is the only hope for our children. The discipline of children is to bring training into our kids' lives so that they can learn that we're not autonomous. They don't get to be in charge, ever. And that's true for you and I. Kids believe someday I'll break out from under this authority and I will be free. I will get an apartment, I will have so much money, I will do all these things and I will finally be free. No, you are always under authority. And that's what this training is about, is to teach our children what it means to submit yourselves to the authority that God has given you. He gives us parents as an authority that we might learn and train and practice submitting ourselves so that when we come out from underneath that authority, we recognize we are still under authority, under God's authority. Learning to humbly submit yourself to authority is part of this kind of preparation of the heart for this difficult reality that we cannot succeed. Despite all of our efforts to obey and get it right, we fail. And into that place of desperation of the heart, for both you and I, and hopefully for our children, comes this beautiful news of the gospel, this beautiful news of Christ. Let's pray, and then uh, we will take some questions. Father, we love you. We thank you that you love us. We pray that you'll Strengthen our hearts, encourage us, remind us of your goodness and mercy to us in Christ. 
And uh, as we consider all of these things, Lord, we pray that your name would be made great, that we would be faithful in spite of our feelings, that we would trust you and your word above how we feel about stuff. And that's easy for us to say, and we can acknowledge that it's true, but it's often very difficult for us to actually do. And so we pray that you'll give us the strength and the courage and the conviction to be found faithful in this area of discipline with our kids, but also in every other area where you have given us clear commands that we just don't want to do. We love you. We thank you for Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, we've got a few extra minutes for questions because this is a very practical topic. Uh, and so we'll, uh, I'll read it, and then I'll give my thoughts, and then I'll kick it to the Jedi Sensei Master Carl of uh, Child Care. One time at a, another church, I called him a male Mary Poppins. As a, Gary Poppins is what I said. But anyway, okay, so awesome. a few things. <clears throat> What are some of the differences between abuse and discipline? If someone's been abused, could it hinder their ability to discipline their kids? So I'll give some thoughts and then I'll kick it to you. There's really two ways that you can view the difference between abuse and discipline. Because abuse is where you hurt a child for their bad, and discipline is where you hurt a child for their good. Here are the differences. First of all, are you going too far? Does the punishment not fit the crime? Like Carl said, if you are leaving bruises or permanent injuries or something like that, that is too far. That's one of the marks of abuse is that you're going beyond what is required to simply get to get them to comply, okay? The second one is, like I just mentioned, are you hurting the child for their bad or are you doing it for their good? Notice that the devil does the first one, harms us for our bad, whereas God does the second one. He harms us for our good. So the, uh, the goal is, am I doing this just to hurt a kid. That's what abuse is, right? So when you're putting out a cigarette on a kid, like you used as an example, that's just abuse. That's different than spanking a kid for their good so that they don't end up in prison or don't end up uh, like that. Uh, second of all, if you have been abused, this will be more difficult for you, just like any type of uh, thing that has been misused. So if you've been sexually abused, it might be hard for you to be intimate with your spouse. That doesn't mean that intimacy with your spouse is bad. It means you have to work through that issue. If you have, uh, you know, if you grew up and you became a drunkard, the proper use of alcohol is going to be difficult for you, but abuse doesn't negate proper use, okay? So let me say it as strongly as I can. If you have been abused and you're not disciplining your kids, that's actually abusive. That's not doing what's good for them. That's not doing what's best for them. Okay, remember, we define love this way a lot at Parkway as this, that love is doing what is best for somebody. So you don't ask, do I like it? You don't ask, do they like it? You ask, what has God said is best? So those are a few thoughts just briefly on that. Did you want to comment on that? Yeah, this? I mean, the only other thing I think I would add is anytime we're wrestling with what I'm doing now and what I think my kids will do in the future as a result of what I'm doing now, all of those things tend to be wrapped up in how I feel and uh, what, that, what emotively that makes me consider. And I think what's most helpful is to remember, I just go to God's word. What does he say I should be doing? I'm going to do that as faithfully as I know how and trust him with the results. Instead of thinking, ah, if I do this, then they might end up hating me. Or if I do this, then my kid might grow up and be fearful if I do. But instead say, what is God asking me to do? And do it. That's good. Yeah, the, the, if you're asking the question, just to comment on that, because I think that's really good. So there's a tendency for you to start. Maybe you haven't done spanking for your kids, and you say, okay, after this lesson, I want to start doing that. You start doing it, and after two weeks, you're like, oh, man, it's not working. 
uh, it might take the rest of their, you know, childhood to get it to work. That's why the Bible's going to say not to set your heart on, you know, putting them to death, that corporal punishment prevents capital punishment is kind of a great phrase. Uh, that's the idea. So you can't say, well, I've discipled my kid, you know, the wrong way for several years, and I'm going to try two months of spanking, and when it doesn't work, I'm just going to throw it away. You be faithful regardless of the results. You don't worry about the results. That's what God worries about. He'll worry about the results. You just worry about being faithful. We don't do something and say, did that work? okay, well, then I guess I'm going to just disregard what the Bible says. You be faithful. And if that means you are faithful to discipline your kid their entire life and they grow up and they become Hitler, you have still done the right thing, okay? So shout out to Hitler's parents. Okay, so uh, second question. Should I discipline my kid for every act of disobedience or can I choose to give a couple of warnings first? So I'll, I'll give a strong opinion on this. I don't know. Hopefully we agree. We might not agree. That's okay. There's some freedom here. When your child has been given a command and they understand the rule, every time they break the rule, you must discipline them 100% of the time, every single time. This whole, come over here, Johnny, or else I'm going to tell you to come over here again, is teaching them to disobey. When you only discipline your child 50% of the time, guess what you've taught them? There is only a consequence for their sin 50% of the time, and that's a risk they're willing to take, okay? If, if I knew that I could rob a bank and 50% of the time I had a 50-50 chance of getting away with it, I would absolutely do that. And your kids are thinking that same way. I know if I do this thing that I want to do that my parents have told me not to, I might not get a spanking this time. And so discipline only works if you're doing it consistently. They have to know every time I do this, it will not be worth it, okay? Every time I do this, that the punishment will not fit the crime. How hard, by the way, should you discipline your kids? Enough to get a result, enough to get, there's a way you can turn up the frequency and you can turn up the heat to where they say it's not worth it. If they're not crying, you're probably not doing it hard enough, okay? Just to be clear, the proof is in the pudding. How do I know if I'm being a good parent to discipline my kids? See how your kids act in comparison to other kids. You didn't just get a bad batch, right? All kids come out broken like that. And so if you want to know, the proof is in the pudding. If you want to know how you're doing, see how your kids are acting. And don't take any shame from that. If I just said that and you're like, oh man, that hurts because I don't feel like I have great kids, don't beat yourself up. This is why we're here, to grow each other, encourage each other. That's why Carl has a job. So you can meet with him and say, help me, I don't know what I'm doing, and we can help shepherd you. But do you want to comment on the, uh, the warnings first and how often to discipline and that kind of stuff? I mean, those are the same things I told him at Arby's about six years ago. Yeah. Before Katie and I had kids, we literally sat with Carl, treated him to lunch at, uh, it was Jack in the Box. Oh, it was Jack in the Box. Gross. <laughs> because your body is a temple. And so Katie, Katie and I would take Carl to Jack in the Box literally once a week, and we would just ask all the questions. What's too much discipline? What's too little? How do you do it? All those kind of things. And so Parkway should be a place where you can do that. For whatever reason, parenting issues, there's this weird stigma about it that if you tell somebody how to discipline their kids, you're being mean, or that you're saying that they're a bad parent if they don't do exactly what you do, there needs to be freedom and grace here to have conversations, and like every area of ethics or theology, to be able to love one another, rebuke one another, train one another. I don't, the reason the Bible has to tell us how to do this is because it is not innate. It is not innate in the human heart to know how to discipline kids, which is why the Bible has to tell us, so we all have sinful inclinations against that. So, anything else in that? You want me to go no, there? good. Okay. This is a great question. How do you know at what age to begin corporal punishment, okay? My answer to that is, as soon as you see sin, that's Carl's answer. Remember, I stole all this at Jack in the Box. As soon as you see sin, let me be very clear. You don't spank your kid if they've done something that's not sinful for just being a kid. If they spill their milk because their tiny little tubby hands, right, are slippery like dolphin skin, baby's hands are, and they drop their milk, 
you don't discipline them for that because they haven't sinned. God doesn't discipline you because you trip over your own feet just because you're a fallible human. What God disciplines for is sin. What you should discipline for is sin. So as soon as you can see that your child is sinning, which happens way sooner than you think, that's when you start doing it. Now, obviously, you might not spank an infant or something like that, but as soon as you say, eat the food, and they grab their tray and start trying to push it off, and you say no, and they keep doing it, that's a hand flick, or that's a mouth flick, or whatever. You can do, and I agree with your interpretation, what the passage is saying is use physical pain to discipline your kid. In the Bible, they use a rod. Today, we use a spanking stick. They used to hit on the back. We hit on the bottom, but the idea is the physical pain. You can start flicking a hand or flicking a mouth at a very young age, and the child gets the issue. They don't like the pain. You can't reason with your kids. If you're always like trying to emotionally get them to obey, they don't care. They want their sin, but they do understand pain. So if it's sin, as soon as you start seeing sin, you start doing little hand flicks and these kind of things for issues that are sin. But other comments on that? Yeah, I mean, I think the only other practical thing I would say is, so Zach used the the example of, you know, if you're you're saying eat your food and the kid pushes it back and says, I don't want to, that's obvious on their face. I'm defying you. But there are more subtle things that your kids do that you might not recognize, demonstrate to you that they understand and now they're sinning, right? So there's an electrical socket and you tell your 18-month-old, hey, don't, don't touch that. And then they just, they just touch it, right? You're like, hey, hey, no, we're not going to touch that. And then they go play and then they come back and they touch it. And you're like, no, no, we don't, we don't touch that. And then one day they do this. You say, don't touch that. And they go, and they look at you. Because they know, this is the thing I'm not supposed to touch. What's going to happen when I do this, right? Then you know. They have, they have demonstrated, they've, given their, their, they've shown their cards, so to speak. And at that point, they need to be disciplined because now they're sinning. Now they, they're saying to you, I know the command, I don't care. That's sin, right? Prior to that, it could be, I don't remember, I didn't understand. I thought it was just the whole wall, or I thought it was just that plug on that side of the room. I didn't understand some of the nuance, but when they demonstrate to you that they do understand, that's when they're in sin, and that's when they need to be disciplined. That's good. Uh, Two new questions that were just sent in. What do you do when your spouse does not agree with spanking? I assume that the presupposition here is that one member of the marriage agrees with uh, spanking and the other one does not. Uh, here's what you need to do practically, and then I'll give you the theology. Practically, you need to send us an email so we can sit down with both of you and talk through the issue. If, if after all of this and everything we've read in the Bible, uh, someone still says, no, you should not spank your kids, there's a reason they're saying that. There's a misunderstanding. There's abuse in the past. There's feeling as though maybe you don't interpret the text that way. There's some other issue going on. So practically, send us an email, and any of our pastors or uh, Uh, staff would be happy to uh, sit down with you and chat more about this issue. Biblically, though, you do what the Bible says regardless of what your spouse says. So, in this case, if the guy is the one who wants to do the spanking and the wife does not, he needs to shepherd his wife to get on board. If you don't know how to do that, come have conversations with us. You don't intrinsically know how to do any of this. You have to be discipled into it like all of us, okay? So, I'm a bad husband, and I used to be a worse husband, and I'll continue being a bad husband, but I can grow a little bit in my badness over time, it's the same way with all of this. If it's the other way around, it's harder if you're the wife who wants to do the spanking and the husband doesn't want to because your husband's the head of the house. But on the other hand, he doesn't get to tell you to sin. 
And so in that case, it's a little bit different because there might be ways where you can still discipline your child and be faithful to the scripture and not do spanking. But we would want to have a conversation with you and your spouse first to try to work through those issues. So I think that's a great question. I don't think it's something we can fully work through in here, but did you want to comment on it? Yeah, I think the only thing I would add to that is just if there is disunity over this issue in your marriage, the one that wants to be faithful to what the text says in in theory, ought to really pursue faithfulness and obedience to God. Will that create confusion for the kid? Will that create conflict in the marriage? Possibly. But is confusion for the kid over, oh, something bad happens sometimes when I sin versus uh, we're just not doing anything together until we get in agreement. And now the kid's thinking, cool, I can do whatever I want and nothing bad ever happens to me. But again, I think unity in your marriage is primary and needs to be pursued with all vigor and everything needs to be sacrificed to try to find that time to work through those issues. Uh, But yeah, I think at the end of the day, you can't just dismiss what God has said until you can get your spouse to agree. Next question, can you address rules, meaning rules you give your kids, I think, should they be explicit, covered with the kids, changed over time? Okay, here's all you need to remember. In my household for my kids, which by the way, they're sitting over there, my kids have one rule they have to remember and only one rule. Here's the only rule. Obey mommy and daddy. That's it. They don't have to remember 1,000 rules, which is also another way of saying 1,000, of don't jump on the couch and don't bring your food into the living room and don't do all these other things. That's too many rules for the kids to remember. So I give them one rule. Obey mommy and daddy. And that's it. And so when they have to get disciplined, I sit down and I say, why did you get in trouble? And they say, because I disobeyed. And I say, correct. And then I say, how did you disobey? You told me not to scream and I was running around screaming or whatever it might be, okay? So what you need to do is you do need to let your kids mainly know the one rule they need to follow is obey mommy and daddy. And then when it comes down to individual commands that you're giving them, those do need to be clear, okay? So if I've never told my child not to jump on the couch and I see them jumping on the couch, I will not spank them that first time because I have not given them the law yet. Okay, God, notice that when God disciplines us, he gives us his rules first. Then when we break them, we get the discipline. I have not given that kid the law yet. And so I will, for the first, I'll say, okay, sit down. Listen, there is no, going to be no jumping on the couch unless you have permission. And we sometimes jump on the couch, but they have to have permission. But uh, there's no jumping on the couch unless daddy gives you permission. And so after that, then I enforce the rule. So I give them the chance to know what the rule is first. And after that, I'm very clear and very explicit. I never want them getting disciplined for something that they don't know is wrong. The only exception I make to that is if it is a danger issue. The very first time they run in the street, I don't have time to tell them next time you run in the street, you'll get a spanking. They could be killed by next time. So if it's a danger issue, I do give them the spanking then and say, listen, I know we hadn't got a chance to talk about it, but this is very dangerous. And I need you to remember from this moment that there is a pain associated with this so that you don't do it. That's the exception. But yes, the rules change over time. Uh, you know, when my son gets older and he's able to, you know, bring his food into the living room without spilling it, then I let him know you are now allowed to do this. But the previous rule stands until I supersede it. Uh, That's typically what we do. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, I think just to reinforce the idea that when we discipline our kids, we need to make sure the discipline is associated with the sin, not a particular behavior, right? So it isn't that my kid needs to believe for the rest of time that jumping on the couch is sinful. What they need to remember is that disobeying mommy and daddy is sinful. And so when we discipline our kids, we're connecting it to their actual sin, which is disobedience, and then we can parse out what that looks like and help them to see disobedience is when a parent gives you a command and you disobey. That's what we're talking about. It isn't, here's this laundry list of 400 things you need to remember for the rest of time, because as Zach said, those things will change. And if a kid grasps this idea of jumping on the couch is always sinful, 
Well, that's false. It's sinful as long as daddy says you shouldn't do it. When daddy gives you permission, it's no longer sinful because your sin in this regard is associated with your obedience or disobedience. So, Yeah, there, there is a be careful when you give your kids directives. If you want them to do it and you give them a command and they disobey, you have to enforce that. You have to give the spanking. You have to give them discipline if you gave them a command. So if you're not wanting it to be a command, then pitch it as a suggestion. So if I, can, if I want to say to my kids, hey, would you like to go in the backyard or would you like to go upstairs and play? Now they have an option. But if I say, go outside and play, and they say no, well, then now they've disobeyed. So be careful. What, what, what makes your kids have a binding command is you giving them a command. So if you want them to have the option, give them the option. But once you give them the command, you have spoken from the mountain like God, and they must obey or they will, uh, or they will uh, reap the whirlwind. So uh, here's a great question. You, by the way, the reason that we're doing this topic, this, this would be seen as something that's kind of weird for a series on social and political issues. This is very much a social issue. Some of our topics are more political, but some of the issues are more social. This is a big social issue, and it does play into some political things. So let me, with that in mind, uh, read this question. You mentioned that there are some countries that have outlawed corporal punishment. What would a Christian parent do in those countries, or if it's outlawed in our country? Because, by the way, I think this is coming down the pipe. I think eventually, uh, as society races towards craziness. Uh, eventually, this will, be, uh, this will be an issue as well. So this one's really tricky. What I would say is, if you live in a country that does not allow corporal punishment, you can either do corporal punishment secretly, and you're going to have to be really smart about it because you don't want to lose your kids to the state. I promise you that spanking is better than timeout, but I promise you that timeout is better than losing your kids, okay? So you can either do it secretly. And by the way, you shouldn't be doing spankings in the middle of Chili's or in the middle of Walmart, you should be going to a place where no one's going to call anybody on you. You should be going into the bathroom or waiting till you get home or something like that. This is a private thing. You don't have to expose your kid to all the public shame and make everyone feel really uncomfortable, okay? If your kid acts up, by the way, when you're out, they also are acting up at home. Those are not different things. My kid never does this at home. That's not true. You just don't notice it till other people are looking at you, okay? So, uh, so one, you could do it secretly, but you'd have to be really smart with that. The other one is then I think it would be okay to say we're going to use a different method that still is discipline because that's the main command behind all of this. We'll use a different method that's still some type of discipline. Maybe if we can't spank or can't use corporal punishment, we'll use some other type of discipline so that we don't lose our kids and we'll just have to be extra, extra diligent about it. Your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I totally agree. I think at the end of the day, if the state passes a law that is contrary to God's word, you have to go with God's word. You have to obey God. And so I think there is wisdom in, in some of Zach's encouragement, which would be you have to do it in secret. You got to be careful. You might have to forego it, things like that. But I think you, again, because we already don't want to do this, it's real easy to find excuses not to. And so if they passed a law in the United States that you can't thank your kids, man, a lot of us would be like, sweet, I didn't want to do that anyway. But instead, we have to push against that and say, no, the, the scriptures are clear. I should be doing this. How can I do it faithfully? How can I do it in a way where I keep my kids and so on? But we have to fight ourselves as well as the state on that issue if it came up because we would want to go along with that law really quickly. Last question because we're about out of time. Could you talk more about how to interpret the passages that talk about using the rod? So let me, let me give a few comments and then I'll, I'll kick it back to you. When the Bible says, and this, by the way, the only way the Bible tells you to discipline your kids, it only gives you one way, okay? It doesn't give you any other option. That doesn't mean other options are wrong. So let me back up even further. You understand that something not being in the Bible is not the same as it being unbiblical, okay? You wouldn't say driving a car is unbiblical. No. 
Having air conditioning is unbiblical. No, those are not in the Bible. Not in the Bible is not the same thing as unbiblical, okay? So there's nothing in the Bible that says you cannot use your hand when spanking a child or something like that. So don't say just because the Bible says use the rod, therefore it logically implies you cannot use something else. That is a logical fallacy, okay? But, uh, but a, few, a few comments on this. What's going on in the Bible is it is mainly commanding you to discipline your kids. The only way it gives you to do that is through physical pain. That doesn't mean that is the only way. That just means that you should be very slow to dismiss the only way God has told you to do that. So we're not saying other ways are wrong, but they're going to be primarily a supplement and not a replacement for the one way that God has told us to do it. Okay, so keep that in mind. All the passages are talking about taking a stick. In the Old Testament, what you would do is you would have a thin stick that's whippy, and you would hit somebody's back. That's literally what it's saying. So if you want to take it literally, you can't spank on the bottom. You can't spank using a little spanking stick or a wooden spoon. If you want to take it that wooden literally, you've got to do it that way. That's not the point, though. What we say is we're already willing to take a step away and say, what is the purpose of this text? Anytime you're given a text in the Bible, you have to say, what's the point? Greet one another with a holy kiss isn't about kissing. It's about greeting one another warmly, okay? Uh, when Jesus tells the disciples, only take, you know, don't take an extra pair of sandals. That doesn't mean you can't take extra clothes on your mission trip. The whole point is trusting God and, you know, trusting others to support you, whatever it might be. In the same way, the primary thing that these texts are saying is discipline your kids, The secondary thing it's saying is discipline your kids using some type of physical pain. The way you do that might vary, but it is pushing towards using some type of physical pain because that's what kids understand. I've seen parents try to sit there with their kid in tears and reason with them for an hour, why do you do that? You know why they do that. You're a Christian because of sin. Then what do they say? I don't know, because they don't care. Your emotional verbal rebuke of them, they do not care about, okay? What they care about is pain. They'll care about the other stuff later. But what's happening with discipline is this. Mankind's fundamental rebellion against God is we want to be in charge. That's what it means when we're in the Garden of Eden where they want to be like God. Humans can't be ontologically like God. We're just these creatures made out of the dirt. What does it mean when Adam and Eve want to be like God? They want to determine what's right and wrong. That's why it's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They want to be in charge. Your child does the same thing. As soon as your child is born, they are always asking this question with every action. Can I be in charge? Are you in charge or can I be in charge? And your job is to shut that down and say, you are never in charge. I am in charge 100% of the time because that's the lesson they need to learn between them and God, okay? So if you are stronger on your kids when they're little, then when they get older, you can actually give them more freedom. We do it the opposite. We give our kids a bunch of freedom when they're little. We don't discipline them very well. We let them pick their food, then pick their clothes. And then when they go to get older and start making bad decisions, we try to tighten the reins. And what does that produce? Rebellion. Instead, let them learn the lesson that you're in charge when they're little, and then when they get older, you're the parent that can give them more freedom. Because I told you so is a great reason when they're three. It's not a great reason when they're 16 and they're trying to make morally competent decisions as an adult. So be strict when they're little, and that way when you get older, you're able to give them more freedoms instead of the other way around. Turn that funnel the other way around. You go from cop to coach to consultant. Okay? That's how it goes. That you're the cop when they're little, do this, don't do this, here's the discipline. Then you turn into a coach, helping them achieve those things. And then when they get older, typically move out of the house, they're a consultant. I still call my dad about financial stuff because he's a banker and I'm a pastor and I don't know numbers. As a pastor, I only need to know the numbers like one, three, seven, and 12, and maybe 40. That's it. Those are the important Bible numbers. And so I have to call him and so he's a consultant. So anyway, there's a mini sermonette. Anything you want to say on that? No, that's great. Okay. All right. You guys are dismissed. And by that, I mean, we'll see you back in here in a few minutes. All right.